So last year, I attended the uh, annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. That's just a fancy way for saying a bunch of Bible and theology nerds get together every year and listen to a bunch of even bigger nerds talk about something that most of us really have no clue what it means for our lives or its significance. But you know what? I had a blast because I'm a Bible and theology nerd. And I respect, I admire these men, these women who write these books that I find so helpful that I lean on in my understanding of who God is and what his word means. And so you can ask Ross, I'm a little embarrassed about how I acted in their presence. Uh, We are invited to go to these rooms and they present papers and then afterward you can talk to them. I was so excited to meet some of these men and women and ask them questions that, do you know how a, a puppy dog sometimes acts when you come home and you've been gone all day and it's just so happy to see you, it's just grinning from ear to ear? Well, that was a little bit like me because I admire these men and women. I was with them. They were giving me their time. Now, for many of you, these types of people wouldn't even raise your pulse. But for each of you, there is someone like that, someone you respect, perhaps someone famous, perhaps not. Someone that if you were in their presence, it would do something to you. It would cause a response of some sort in your heart and in your behavior. And we all have those people that when we're with them, something happens. One of the most marvelous mysteries of the Christian faith is that the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are in us and with us. The Bible teaches us that we are corporately and individually the temple of God, and that we are united with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit for all eternity. So what response does being in God's presence do in us? So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we talk about God's presence and how we are to respond to him being in us and with us. And our text is Joshua. We're going to continue through Joshua. We're in chapter 5, verse 13, and we're going to work through the end of chapter 6. And here's the structure of of our sermon this morning. We're going to first just establish God's presence, that he's with his people. And next, we're going to look at the effects of his presence and what his presence means for our lives today. And then finally, we're going to look at how we personally respond to the presence of the triune God. So read with me, beginning in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5, when we talk on our first point, God's presence. He is with his people. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Stop there with me. So who exactly was this commander of the army of the Lord? He was more than likely the Lord himself, what we Bible and theology nerds call a theophany, which means the visible manifestation of God, who is spirit. And why do I think that? Well, verse 15 here is almost an exact duplicate of Exodus 3 verse 5, which is the burning bush with Moses. Exodus 3, 5 through 6 reads, God said, do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He added, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Second, did you know the Bible over 200 times calls God the Lord of hosts? That's another way for saying the commander of the army of the Lord, the commander of angels, who is the Lord's army, his servants of judgment and protection. So here I believe this is God's visible presence as the Lord of hosts. And he's telling Joshua with this sword drawn in his hand, I am here to judge this city and protect you, my people. Let's read now uh, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6. And in doing this, we're going to see the Lord's battle plans for Joshua as we continue to see ways that God was present with his people. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, okay, great, I understand that's the Lord's instructions, but how does that instruct me that God is present with his people in this moment? So first, what we need to understand is the Lord's instructions here are a common Near Eastern royal procession or royal bodyguard, the order of things here. Uh, not that the Lord needed a bodyguard, but the point is, is the Lord told his troops, his priests, to march in such a way that it matched their understanding of a royal procession, telling them, I'm with you in this procession. You were proceeding around this city with me, your king. 
And we see that with uh, the ark being present in verse 4. The ark was the visible representation of the Lord's presence with his people. We also see that with these trumpets that the priests were blaring, these ram's horns. These were always used as an announcement of the king's arrival. The king is here. He has arrived. And then this repetition of seven over and over again in the Lord's instructions. This is significant because it coincides with the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, which immediately began after the uh, uh, Passover, which we saw last week. So it was the Passover for a day, and then it was the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And they both were celebrating the same thing. They were remembering God being with his people, delivering his people from the Egyptians, their enemies. And while they're marching around for seven days, they're remembering God did this once for us already. He will do it again. He is with us. And this moves us to our our next point on the presence of God. And it's the effects. What effect does God's presence have with his people? So again, we just looked at the fact that he is present. Now we're going to look at two effects. The first is his presence assures or guarantees his people victory. So we looked at verses 13 through 15 in chapter 5. And what I want you to know from that is that this is God assuring Joshua of victory. And by what I mean is in verse 5 of chapter 1, the very first passage of this book, the Lord tells Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So the Lord had told Joshua that in the very opening passage of this book in chapter 1. And now here with this manifestation of the commander, he's saying, look, I'm here. I will fulfill that promise to be with you, to grant you victory. And now look at chapter 6, verse 2 here. I know we're jumping around a lot, but you guys are staying with me. Y'all are doing great. Verse 2 of chapter 6, where the Lord again guaranteed victory. And he did that by using what's called the perfect tense of certitude. Read with me chapter 6 verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. I have given. It's the perfect of certitude. The fact that God was with his people guaranteed their victory. Again, why? Because he is the commander. He fights for his people. So that's the first effect is that it guarantees victory for God's people. The fact that God is with us. The second effect is it leads his people to what's called faithful obedience. It's this obedience rooted in our trust in God. And Joshua and the Israelites model this perfectly for us. In fact, the majority of chapter 6 is devoted to demonstrating their faithful obedience. 
And we know this because Hebrew scholars who know the original language far better than I do will tell you that in verses 6 through 15, every phrase that God uttered to Joshua in the instructions of verses 3 through 5 are repeated here. It's this repetition of Joshua and his troops doing exactly what God told them, no matter how peculiar it seemed. And it was very peculiar. Read with me verses 6 through 15 as we see them carry out these instructions, which is faithful obedience. So Joshua, verse 6, the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. Jump down to verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Okay, stop there. So again, one of the effects of the presence of God in the lives of his people is faithful obedience. No matter how peculiar his instructions are. And the author of our text, Joshua, wants us to see that through the repetition of these phrases over and over and over again, that they understood that God is faithful, he's with them, and that it is wise and best to carry out those instructions through faithful obedience. This is, in fact, what some believe to be the emphasis of our text we tend to focus on the miraculous falling of the walls. But that is a mere effect, a mere effect of the Lord's presence with his people and their faithful obedience to carry out his instructions. But we do need to talk for some time on the destruction of Jericho. 
It needs to be touched on. Because it's hard for us to understand why God would do this. So read with me verses 16 through 25 as we look at Joshua's description of its destruction. Verse 16. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab with her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Okay, stop there. First, on this topic of destruction. What we need to realize is that God is both just and merciful. He is just and merciful. In fact, regarding his mercy, in this section here, verses 16 through 25, 80 Six words are devoted to the mercy shown to Rahab and her family. Throughout this destruction, we keep going back to, but Rahab, but Rahab, but Rahab. Eighty-six words are devoted to the salvation of Rahab, God's mercy. And only 102 are devoted to the destruction of Jericho. That tells us that God's focus is not only on justice, even in this situation, but on showing mercy. The Lord is merciful. In fact, one commentator put the destruction of Jericho this way. The conquest was not gross injustice, but the highest and most patient justice. What I mean by that is, All the way back in Genesis 15, as the Lord was talking with Abraham, 
he told Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan 400 years to repent. Plus seven days that we just saw in our text. 400 years to repent of their heinous sins. But only Rahab did. She was the only one that responded to the holy presence of God by way of repentance. So what did Jericho do for these 400 years to deserve this justice at the hand of God? We see in lots of places, but clearly Leviticus 18, they had a zeal for all kinds of sexual immorality. You name it, they did it. They had a zeal for it. It was a common part of their religious practice. We also see in Deuteronomy 12, they had a zeal for demonic activity. They were very religious, but with the demonic world, tying in sexual immorality, but also child sacrifice. They regularly practiced child sacrifice. So the destruction of Jericho and all the inhabitants of Canaan was indeed just, but it was also merciful. Why was it merciful? Because God was clearing out a space where his people could be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, so that God could extend his mercy to the surrounding peoples, so that these peoples around the promised land could one day experience the mercy of God. And that would not be possible. God would not be able to extend this mercy to these surrounding nations through Israel if he didn't first clear out this people that practiced these types of sins because it would ensnare Israel and prevent them from being this holy nation. And in fact, it did. Israel failed to clear out all of these people and they were ensnared by their sins and they forfeited this opportunity to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So what does this mean for our lives? That's what we're going to look at now as we move to our next point is the presence of God and what it means for our lives today. Those uh, encounters with the presence of God in our, our passage this morning, they're, they're contrasted by two different characters. The presence of God comes in, and we see two contrasting characters in response to God's presence. The first is Joshua. Joshua, he encountered the presence of God. And the second is Jericho. Jericho encountered the presence of God. And what ties these two together Joshua and Jericho, is this one Hebrew word, fell. The same Hebrew word is used to describe Joshua falling on his face in the presence of God, in worship, in faithful obedience, and Jericho refusing to repent and falling, their walls falling upon themselves. Because of God's holy presence. These same responses are contrasting to this presence of God. And what this tells us is that Joshua is a picture for us 
of this worship, of this faithful obedience. Joshua fell on his face. The walls of Jericho fell down. Joshua fell in humble worship, recognizing the holy presence of God. Jericho fell on itself as a result of not recognizing the holy presence of God. But what does this mean for us as Christians today? Well, corporately, this is to encourage us that as we look at the world, this broken world with these broken kingdoms, so to speak, mismanaging their rule, we can take confidence, we can be encouraged, the reality that God's kingdom will topple all other kingdoms when the Lord Jesus returns. And that gives us encouragement that the way we see things now, the way we see kingdoms operating now, refusing to acknowledge the holy presence of God, when the Lord returns, he will topple those kingdoms. He will establish his kingdom. And we will be with him for all eternity. But individually, this is also very encouraging to us. Because at the moment of your salvation, Christ is in you. And Colossians tells us that the reality that Christ is in us, this is our hope of glory. That the good work God began in you at the moment of your salvation, when the Spirit indwelt you, it will lead to your glory. He will make you into the holy image that he desires you to reflect of who he is. But we presently struggle with the sin within. We do. We struggle with the sin within. That doesn't change the fact that God's holy presence is within us. So how do these two relate to one another? The sin within that we struggle with and the holy presence of God that, was, that is within us. Because similarly to Joshua, we are holy ground. And the Lord wants us to respond appropriately to his holy presence in us. Think of it like this. How often in your experience, your walk with God, you hear from God through his word and by his spirit. And rather than like Joshua falling upon your face, worshiping him, and then leading to your faithful obedience, are we more like Jericho, where we pull up the drawbridge, so to speak? We raise the towers. We refuse to acknowledge his holy presence in our lives. In fact, read with me chapter 6, verse 1. I want you to see this picture of Jericho in response to the holy presence of God. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This is literally was a shutting and shut up. A shutting and shut up, meaning they were actively blocking access into Jericho and out of Jericho. And what we see with this is it's a word picture. It's a picture representing total resistance to the presence of God and his kingdom purposes. Total resistance, just this shutting up. And we do this in our own lives, and I don't think I have to convince any of you of that fact. We struggle with the sin within. We shut ourselves off 
from God's kingdom purposes for our lives. We attempt to even hide areas of our heart from God, hoping he'll leave us alone and forget, and we can just move on with our lives. We attempt to hide the sin and the disobedience by building walls up. However, no wall is high enough to keep God out of that area of our heart that we are keeping to ourselves, hoping he'll move on and leave us alone. Let me tell with you uh, from my own life, a Jericho moment where as a child of God, rather than confessing a sin and moving on with the Lord, I built up a wall, keeping God out, saying, no, your kingdom purposes have no place in this part of my heart. It was 2010. I was a student at a Bible college in Alaska. And while I lived in Alaska, one of my goals was to shoot a bull moose. They are enormous animals. They can weigh up to 1,500 pounds, providing you meat for a year. And I, as a cash-strapped student, thought this was a wonderful idea. So I purchased the the permit, I found my hunting spot. And the thing about hunting moose in Alaska is they have very strict guidelines. The bull moose must either measure 50 inches from tip to tip or have four brow tines. And that's true for almost every area of the state except for a few small places, one of which I was hunting very nearby where it just needs to be a bull moose. It doesn't have to be large. Well, those are the requirements, and because of those requirements, it's very important to err on the side of caution. Why? Because if you mistakenly shoot a bull moose that doesn't qualify, you forfeit the animal, and you pay a hefty fine. So there I was on day two of my hunt, and doing my best to impersonate a cow moose with a bugle I had recently bought and tried to train myself on how to use. Lo and behold, out of the shrubs came a bull moose, and it was a long ways off. So I put my scope up, and I'm looking through the scope, and I think to myself, that is the largest animal I have ever seen through my scope. I was so excited. No, calm yourself. Is it 50 inches? Uh, I don't know. Can't really tell. Does it have four brow tines? No, I knew it didn't have four brown tines. Okay, so is it 50 inches? Mm, I can't tell. At that point, I should have erred on the side of caution. I just knew that to pull the trigger would be a foolish act. But I became the fool. I pulled the trigger, dropped the moose, went to it and realized it did not measure up. Now, it's at this point that I started to build my Jericho wall. Rather than call the game warden, turn the moose in, pay the fine, I said, no. Just right down the hill is that zone where you can shoot any size moose you want. I'm just going to lie. I'm just going to tell them I shot the moose right there. So that's what I did I told my classmates, I told my professors, I told my friends, I told everyone that I shot the moose down by the lake, that it didn't measure it up, and that's fine because it didn't have to, but the reality is I was not measuring up to God's standards for me. In reading this passage this morning of God circling Jericho 
and the trumpets blaring, announcing his holy presence, giving them opportunities to repent, to come forth like Rahab. I experienced that. I experienced the Lord not leave me alone, but continue to circle me, blaring those trumpets. But I continued to build my wall higher, thicker, hoping God would just leave me alone so I could move on with my life. But then one day, I got a call from an Alaskan state trooper. He had a question for me about the date of me establishing my residency in Alaska and the date I bought my Alaskan resident moose permit. I told the truth. It added up. We moved on. But those trumpets were blaring very loudly. You see, I knew this state trooper. I attended church with him. He was a godly man, a kind man, a man that I respected and I admired. And so I now had on my cell phone his cell number. And I decided I'm going to call him back. So I did. Called him back, told him what I had done. Faced the music. Let my walls down. It was simultaneously one of the scariest moments of my life and one of the happiest. Ridding myself of the rottenness in my bones of hiding that sin was so liberating. It was cleansing. Bringing it to the light. God saying, you belong to me. No part of your heart is off limits to my kingdom purposes. And when you build up those walls, I don't leave you. I don't forsake you. I continue to draw you with my mercy to confess that sin. And in my situation, God was both merciful and just. In one sense, the charges were simply to pay the fine. There was no criminal penalty. But in a much deeper sense, I experienced the justice of God by way of his forgiveness. I experienced the justice of God by way of his merciful forgiveness. You see, because I've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, when I encounter the justice of God, it's always through his mercy, through Christ's atonement for me. And as 1 John 1, 9 tells us, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I experienced that and I will never forget it. It's deeply marked me. So I encourage you, if you're a believer and you've built up walls in this one section of your heart trying to keep God out, let those walls down. Let his merciful justice cleanse you so that you can move on with him and his kingdom purposes. And if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that initial forgiveness of your sins, what's stopping you? He is a God of mercy and justice. So how do we respond personally to God's holy presence in our lives? The God who will never leave us, never forsake us. Let down your walls and move forward with God. Let down your walls and move forward 
with God. We've talked about this letting down of our walls, but did you know this concept, this phrase, move forward, is also a key phrase throughout the entire book of Joshua? This move forward is mentioned three times in our passage. You can look twice in verse 7, when they go forward in obedience, and once in verse 8, past tense, when the priests go forward in obedience. In the book of Joshua, this idea of moving forward is first mentioned as they move through the waters of the Jordan in faithful obedience for God's kingdom purposes to move forward through them. Moving forward is a picture. It's a picture of God's kingdom purposes moving forward in us and through us through our faithful obedience to this merciful God who is with us and loves us. So in closing, what walls Have you erected? Let them down and move forward with the God of all mercies who loves you and will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children through your son. And because of that reality, we have all hope knowing that no matter what sin we are struggling with presently, you will lead us to glory when we see your son face to face. And presently, you always give us a way out to move forward with you through confession, through faithful obedience, not by our strength, but because of your spirit who is in us. I pray for us now, may we be people who more than anything desire to move forward with you, letting our walls down. I pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name, amen.